Well, greetings and welcome to Deep in Scripture. Thank you for joining this time when my son John Mark and I uh, take some time to reflect, particularly during this series, if you will, on a treatise on the Lord's Prayer by St. Cyprian. And uh, we've been focusing on one portion of that treatise in which Cyprian talks about the will, thy will be done, and talking about really what we're, what uh, the Lord was encouraging us to recognize. It's not so much that we're worried about whether God's will will be done, but will it be done in our life? And and can we discern what God's will is? And uh, will we have the grace and the strength to to follow that will? Because as it says in Scripture, from beginning Genesis all the way to Revelation, we'll we'll stand before God on how well we've lived out God's will in our life. So we want to know it. And what Cyprian did in this treatise, he gave a list of virtues or a list of actions uh, that Cyprian thought would be helpful for people to learn God's will and know God's will and keep God's will. Right, John Mark? And we've been looking at that for a couple. Yeah. Yeah, it's an interesting list, a list that is supposed to to show us how Christ himself lived out what he taught us in the Lord's Prayer, how how he was an example of all these things. And so that's an an added dimension to all these in that Christ lived them out as a son to a father. And it's it's an interesting one, in particular to the one today, because even with this, with today's quality, it's odd to think of it in Christ's life, but, but it's there too, it's meaningful. To even think of the Son of God have this have this quality, yeah. Um, we're called to imitate Jesus. Uh, Saint Paul said, "Imitate me as I imitate Christ." He recognized that as as one of responsibilities as an apostle, as a bishop, as a priest, deacon, as a husband and a father. As you and I are, John Mark, we, we're called to accept this calling to our children and to anyone in our life, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Um, And he gives these lists, okay, if if you're called to imitate Christ, these are some some qualities. And we've gone through a batch of them, and and we find yourself now, oh, this is about nine or ten on the list, and it's the quality of fearing him because he is God. Fearing him because he is God. And uh, as we've done in the past, I've thrown together some scriptures. But, John Mark, I, I thought before we jump into the verses, reflect a bit, if you would, on just that phrase, fearing him because he is God. And, and maybe to jump ahead before I open the door to you again, John Mark, is. Yeah. This issue of the fear of the Lord has been in the forefront of my thinking for as long as I've been in ministry. And I've been in ministry now over 40 years, first 20 or more of that as a Protestant pastor, and then in the last 20 or so as a Catholic. And um, this issue of the fear of the Lord has always been something that's I've seen very important and sadly very lacking. And part of the reason it's lacking is I think people have a difficult time talking about what it is. And we might even have it <laughs> bringing it together in this short time. But just the phrase itself, fearing 
him because he is God. How did that strike you when you first saw that phrase of Cyprian's? Yeah, it's an interesting phrasing of of this. And as we'll see in the scripture passages, you picked the fear of the Lord. Uh, it's just it's it's phrased in different ways in different parts of scripture. But uh, Cyprian's phrasing here, fearing him because he is God, it seems to me to, to be really significant because um, it precisely ties the fear to the truth of who God is. You know, it's not necessarily emphasizing fear him because of this or that thing you're worried about. You know, uh, it, it's fearing him because of his identity. And Christ reveals who God's identity is to us. You know, he is a father. He is creator. You know, all that the, the, the Bible reveals about who God is. Cyprian is reminding us that this fear is to be rooted in who God is. It's not primarily to be rooted in who we are, in our necessarily our frailty or, you know, our self-concern. It's rooting our fear in who is God, what's the reality of who God is, the truth of who God is. And I, I feel like that phrasing is is really significant to me. It seems to me that the, the fear of God is connected a lot to humility. You know, humility being connected to, can I really turn and face the truth of who I am and who God is? And that seems to be a lot of what the, the fear of God that's being talked about is, uh, is about. It, to the point that fear of God is the necessary uh, prerequisite to humility. Hmm. Uh, authentic humility yeah. as a human being, authentic yeah. humility is built around the kernel of the fear of God. And that's why in the selections, we could have had 300 verses in this scripture study. We can't do that, right. of course. Right. So where do we begin? How do we narrow it down? So the scriptures that I've brought together are almost a, a historical examination, if you will, of fear of the Lord in Scripture. And uh, even as you and I were talking, I'm going to throw one on in the beginning, but it isn't on our list that I mentioned before, because I think it sets the, the foundation for what we're talking about. Fear of God. Why is it so important? Look at the news every night. Do you see the fear of God? Do you see the fear of God anywhere? And that's why I want to begin with Psalm 14, because even though Psalm 14 doesn't mention the word fear of God, it's very much in that verse, because the psalmist is saying that the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none that does good. The Lord looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there is any that act wisely, that seek after God. Now, the word important there is, are there any that act wisely? So remember that. <laughs> they have all gone astray. They are all alike corrupt. There is none that does good, no, not one. Have they no knowledge, all the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord? Now, that's Psalm 14, 1 through 4. Now, the reason that I, it's important, this verse is important to me is because when I was a Lutheran and then Calvinist pastor, this was the verse that we all took as the foundation for the total depravity of humanity. 
Even the idea that Luther and Calvin went that our wills are totally depraved. There isn't a thing we can do. Why? Because of what this says. And because this is quoted in Romans. But when you read the whole part of the psalm that I just read, it does mention that these totally depraved people eat up my people, God says. So it emphasizes that there are groups of people. There are those who have an emptiness in their heart that needs to be filled by God, but it isn't because they denied the reality. And in essence, there is no fear there. And as a result are all the other things. Or there are those people who by grace's hearts have been changed and they've turned towards God in response to God's love and grace. And the kernel upon which that is built is fear of God. Your thoughts, Tom? Yeah, they, yeah he, again, the contrast, the fool says there is no God, the wise man has this fear of God because God is. He recognizes that God is who he is. Um, and so that fear out of which grows the wisdom and the love and all that, it's rooted in, again, in this, this basic truth. You know, you're either going to build your life denying that truth, and that's folly, or you're going to build your life around this truth. And you can't acknowledge that truth without awe and trembling and this holy fear. And it seems to be that that's, that's what's being developed in these scriptures. It, it's based on this idea that we fear him because he is God brings up to my mind those those scriptures in the prophets, Isaiah and Jeremiah, that talk about the potter and the clay. It's in Job, the potter and the clay. Who are you, hey, excuse me, who are you to tell the potter? Uh, you know, who, because you when you recognize that that we're clay and he's the potter, it puts everything in the right perspective. If you don't have that perspective, pretty soon you're blind to the fact that you think you're in charge. And that you're not accountable to anyone. And that I won't be accountable to anyone. And so you turn on the news and you see a whole bunch of people that don't feel, at least doesn't seem like, they think someday they're going to be accountable for the way they live their lives. Right. Do they look themselves in the mirror and feel any sense that they are, they are also looking into the eyes of their Creator? And this reminded me of another scripture, John Mark, and this is in Romans chapter 1, that claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images of birds and animals, and therefore God gave them up to the lust of their hearts. But that's the point where he says, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them ever since the creation of the world. His indivisible nature, namely his eternal power and deity, have been clearly perceived in things that he has made, so they are without excuse. It's not that the guy that says, in, the fool says in his heart there is no God. It's not because he didn't have the, the data. The data is there. Right. It's right. also within our being called conscience. Yeah. Yeah. That's why, again, that's why it's, this is so bound up for me with humility because there, there seems like there, it's just not just a matter of data. It's a matter of turning away from reality. It's, it's a willful self-deception. It's embracing a lie, a fundamental lie about the universe. And if there's, if there's a lack of fear of God, you know, one of two things has happened. Either I've made God 
in my mind, I've made God something less than he is either, either uh, we were talking beforehand about the, the bit from Lewis, you know, he emphasizes with the character Aslan, he's not a tame lion. Well, either we've made God a kitten or we've, or we're trying to pretend that God isn't there in some way we've diminished God or in some way we've, or in addition to that, we've raised ourselves up, but either way the we've, we've denied the fundamental truth that God is God and I am a, merely a creature. And whenever that relationship is restored in our minds, that's, that's this, this root of wisdom, that chasm that the real, the real chasm that exists between God and his glory and his goodness and me where I am. And we can't begin to ascend the ladder, the ladder he wants us to ascend until we accept that distance that I, I am down here and I need his grace. But to deny that, again, that's this folly, this lack of fear that is just, it's, um, yeah, I mean, the, the, the scripture warns yep. about it all over the place. I mean, we, a lack of fear of God leads to disrespect. A lack of fear of God leads to arrogance, leads to self-idolatry. And you can see how that's played out in relationships in our world. You know, if you no longer fear people you ought to fear, it leads to disrespect and abuse. And as... As the psalmist said, they are corrupt and they do abominable deeds. You know, it leads to that. It leads in that way in a family. You know, if there's not a healthy relationship of fear between parents and children, then pretty soon there's no authority. Pretty soon there's no discipline. Pretty soon there's lack of respect. Pretty soon there's chaos. And the core of that, the beginning of that, Scriptures say fear of God. Now let's let's look at the scriptures because yeah. this is the data here. I mean, there's so much yeah. to go on. So again, I I put these together in a historical uh, chronology, if you will. So we were beginning uh, with Deuteronomy 10, and John Mark, why don't you read that? Deuteronomy 10, 12 through 13. Sure. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you, but to fear the Lord your God? to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I command you this day for your good. The, the beauty of the way the author put that together, whether it was Moses himself or the secretary that was recording now what, what Moses was saying, is that you... If you, you wonder whether I can fear the Lord and love the Lord at the same time, we put it all together here. Right. It's all of a of a single package. Yeah. You know, yeah. And, and they go together. And if you take one of them out, then the others fall apart. Right. Without the, it wouldn't be love. You know, without the kind of fear that's being talked about, that's being this notion that's being felt. Without that kind of of fear. The love isn't real love. And they're in the midst of all these other nations that do not fear God. So they're, as as St. Paul was talking about in Romans, so they're out there worshiping squirrels and and uh, whatever, you know, little, making little things out of rocks, and there they are. No, fear the Lord. So you've, you've 
you've, you've drawn your attention away from all the other distractions that might want you to worship them, and you've worshiped the correct being who created us and has placed before us exactly the way he wants us to live, not because he wants our worship, but because that's what best for us. He's our potter. You're good. Yeah. He knows what, to, and so the beginning is, is this, this fear of him, and as our creator, as our untamed lion, as, as C.S. Lewis, and then because of that, we therefore discipline to walk in his ways, therefore we love him, he's the one we are to love, not all these other false gods, to serve him with all your heart and all your soul, mind, strength, and to keep demands of statues, Lord, which I command you this day for your good, for yeah. your good. Yeah. Yeah, they, uh, another thing that, that comes up often in Scripture then connected to fear is kind of this emphasis on the God's consistency. You know, it's a, it's a drumbeat throughout the Scripture. Like, if you do this, God will do this. You know, God is faithful. You know, if you if you would but just, you know, return to me, Israel, I would take care of you. That's throughout the Psalms. You know, and that's, uh, again, that, that little quip we mentioned from C.S. Lewis when they're talking about Aslan, you know, the, the whole the whole assertion there is that he's, no, he's not a tame lion, but he's good. And that's this, this lesson throughout scripture that God is, he's not tame. He is, he's the creator. You know, you can't put him in a box. You can't, you can't bargain with him. You can't conjole him. You can't change him. He is all, all powerful and all knowing. He's the big honcho. He's at the top of the ladder here, but he is good. And that's, you know, we have these scriptures that saying, Israel, if you would only repent, if you'd only come back to me, I would take care of you. You know, and so there's, again, there's that fear of God for who he is. Um, but also there's a, in that fear, there's a, there's the, again, the, the seeds of true, pure, perfect love because God can be trusted. You know, he, he will do what he says he's going to do. And he will fulfill his part of the bargain. If he says, this is the way I want you to walk and don't walk over here. Yeah. Because if you walk here, then you have a relationship with me. If you walk this way, you're turning your back on me, and there will be consequences. Right. So if you'd go that way, fearing him means, no, he's going to fulfill what he said. Right. He may have mercy, because we know from history that there are times when Scripture says he repents. Right. And that's his forgiveness. But that's his total freedom, because his, his underlying consistency is... He said right. he's going to do this, and he's going to do it. Yeah. I think that as a father, you know, if we say, you know, you do this, I'm going to whatever, and then we don't do it. Mm. So in time, pretty soon our children think, well, you know, <laughs> I don't yeah. need to fear him. I don't need to worry about it because it doesn't matter what he says. He's never going to come through with it. Right. Yeah. Well, and just like with just like with, with our relationship to God and our relationship to our children, the the forgiveness, the mercy, we always desire to give that to children. God always desires to give that to us, but we still have to repent. We still have to come back. You know, even there, he, he'll be perfectly just, but also perfectly loving in the sense that God will not force you to love him. You know, in the end, you'll say to God, thy will be done, or he will say to you, <laughs> have it your own way, you know. I'm, I'm almost hesitant to say this on 
the show because I, I can't always think about the ramifications of it, but I can tell you that I remember talking to a priest one time who told me that for all the years of his priesthood, he had never from the pulpit confronted his people about abortion. And he had just done it that last Sunday for the first time in his whole 50 years of priesthood, whatever it was. And he was, he was show, talking to me about that. And he admitted that the reason that he was afraid to say what was true is because he wanted his people to love him. And it's interesting to see here that the fear of God, the love of God go together. You know, God, because he loves us, doesn't loosen up everything so that we love him. He says, this is the way I want you to live. And that's what we as as dads need to do, and it's tough. Uh, but what we find is that we love God because of his consistency. Because the rules he set for us is because, as it says here, it's for your good. It's for your good. And we are grateful for the restrictions he puts on our lives because he knows, as our creator, what's good for us. So fearing him, respecting those boundaries that he's set for us, that's part of fear of God. Right. Yeah, it's the it's this gateway that opens everything else. I mean, that the, the next, the, what you had on the list there, the psalm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the next three, we'll just read them together. One's from the Psalms, sure. one's from Proverbs, one's from Sirach. These are the, comes from the wisdom literature. So it's taking that foundational teaching that was in the law. And now in the wisdom literature, there, it's more like a reflection on it, more like philosophical, reflect, theological reflection, how it applies to our life often, in the, of course, in the context of poetry. Proverbs 25, the friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. Proverbs 9, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. And Sirach 1.9, the fear of the Lord is glory and exaltation and gladness and a crown of rejoicing. The fear of the Lord delights the heart and gives gladness and joy and long life. With him who fears the Lord, it will go well at the end. On the day of his death, he will be blessed. To fear the Lord, again, is the beginning of wisdom. So there we have the authors, you know, pulling together, well, what is this fear? They're trying to say, well, how does it touch the, all the different areas of our life? And uh, again, this the beginning of wisdom, it's the core upon which true wisdom of life, true wisdom of understanding of God, true wisdom of what it means to love, um, true wisdom of what it means to say yes or no. The core of that is, is the fear of God. Right. Yeah, you know, it's interesting how, despite our faith, we live in a culture and we absorb not necessarily the, the, the specific doctrines or principles or beliefs of the culture, but we still absorb by osmosis, just by being in the in the soup, as you like to say, 
you know, the, the sensitivities, the sensibilities, the presuppositions of the world around us. And one of them, it's a, it's a real subtle thing. And maybe, maybe those listening won't identify with this, but it, it strikes me that to talk about this fear of the Lord, this basic truth as being such a fundamental, a leaping off point for how your life's going to go. You know, it reminds us that sometimes it, we, we, we think of the faith as like an additional truth. Like we have all these truths, you know, there's scientific truth and history and all this kind of stuff. And then there's the faith as if that's something added to this. But where our faith stands, where the content of the faith, you know, the, whether or not God is God and he created us and he has a plan for us, that doesn't stand in relation to the rest of this as an addition, but as the underlying, like it affects everything. You know, all this stuff is in that story. And so, you know, if that's the case, again, everything changes if you acknowledge that God is God. He created this universe. How can there be any wisdom apart from that? I mean, that that really makes sense of, of this, what this wisdom li- literature is trying to, to beat the drum here. Without that basic truth, like you, you have to answer that first. Because if that's not the case, everything's different. Everything's changed. Whereas if God is God, then there's no wisdom apart from that reality. Everything grows out of that. Everything stands in relationship to, to that reality that God is God. And so it has to start there. Yeah. Uh, again, if you turn on the evening news, which I almost want to tell everybody don't anymore, but when <laughs> you turn on the evening news. If, if one were to do so. <laughs> we are confronted right now with worldwide focused on scientific matters and political matters. You know, the COVID crisis is a scientific matter. Global warming is a scientific matter at core. It really should be. And then we have political matters. We see that the way that's being carried out all around the world. The fear of the God and our faith isn't a separate issue, as you're saying, Jamar. Right. How we understand science and politics isn't separate from our faith. And at the core of that should be the fear of God. And the way we approach what we learn from science and what we learn from how we carry out our politics should be the core of it, should begin with a recognition of God. In fact, that one line in there, uh, where is it? Is that with him who fears the Lord, it will go well at the end. <laughs> the, the core of our entire life is built upon the fear of God. Yeah. And if we set that apart, again, it's like a moonshot that takes off from Earth at a fraction of a degree off. And then it misses the moon by 100,000 miles. Yeah. It's a fear of the Lord that keeps bringing it back online. Right. The retro rockets, you know, that, that, that bring us back online, our space shot. And, and also, you know, it affects so profoundly how we go about that journey. Not So not just the end point, as you're saying, but like what the, what the journey's like. I mean, it says earlier in that Syriac passage, it's talking about the fear of the Lord is glory and exaltation and gladness and a crown of rejoicing. The fear of the Lord delights the heart and gives gladness and joy and long life. I mean, thinking of fear, it's interesting here. Perfect fear of the Lord. Like if, if God is God and I am not, and I base my life on that reality and everything else flows from that, everything is understood in relationship to that. Well, then 
perfect fear of God casts out all other fear. What else is there to fear if I truly fear the Lord? If I truly respect and fear the Lord, I don't I don't ultimately fear for my death or for sickness or for plague or for trouble because all those things stand in relation to that underlying reality. God is God. Whenever we act, it's interesting, whenever we have fear of those things, whenever we get taken by fear, anxiety for the future, anxiety, there's a failure in true fear of God underlying all that. Because somehow, do, do I not really think that God is God and that he will take care of me? I'm either, I'm either afraid because I'm, I'm hiding from God or because I'm rejecting the, the wisdom that God is God. There's, a, there's a, a huge portion of Christianity that is their main focus is assurance of salvation so that you don't fear death. And so you can know for sure. And that the extreme of that is a one saved, always saved idea. Right. You know, if I accepted Jesus 37 years ago, then I know. And what that it does, it, it completely erases any need for fearing God or loving God or loving neighbor because I accepted Jesus 37 years ago. Right. But this thing says that it's the, it's the daily ongoing friendship with God. And it said the friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him. It's right. this ongoing friendship with him. That's our focus. And if we live in fear and love and service of the Lord, it will go well in the end, it says. Because this all comes together in what it means to trust him. Right. What it means to trust him. Now, uh, yeah, uh, because of time, let's keep going, moving on. And some would say, well, that, that's an Old Testament thing. We don't fear the Lord anymore. Jesus has come. He saved us. He's redeemed us. You know, the cross. What's with this fear? It's, that's an Old Testament thing. Well, first of all, John Mark, did Jesus say anything about fearing God? He and, did. Yeah, and you have a... I, I kind of added it at the last minute. Luke chapter 12, verses 4 through 7. You have it there, John Mark? I do. Luke 12, 4 through 7. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have no more than they can that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has power to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies, and not one of them is forgotten before God? Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are more value, you are of more value than many sparrows. You know, people, when they discuss the fear of the Lord, they want to make, well, you know, I'm not talking about fear of hell. I'm not fear of punishment. That's servile fear. Filial fear is this fear that a son has for his father who trusts his father, knows his father, will always love him. So it's a respect. It's an awe. And the problem with that, and that, that's all true. I mean, that's part of Thomas Aquinas' writings, and, and uh, that's all true, except that you can get the idea that you move on from servile fear, and I, that's not a part of it anymore. There's just this. Right. But the truth is, it's an all 
life both and. Yeah. You know, it reminds me back to um, uh, Cyprian's specification. Again, I think the, the phrasing is really significant here. Fear him because he is God. It seems to me that the main problem with the de-emphasis of the servile fear and the fear of punishment is not... I mean, there's, there's a truth there that, that, that we, we recognize that that can't be the engine out of which true love goes. Like, we recognize that that fear is deficient. That can't be the whole picture of it. But it seems to me that the main issue is that if you, when you take that away, you begin to change your picture of who God is. And that picture, that who God truly is, is also one who is perfectly consistent and just, who keeps his promises, who keeps his, he, he'll do what he says he's going to do. So the problem when you, t- when you begin to pull away those, you know, the fear of hell, the fear of punishment, the problem is, is the, is you're, you're, you're changing your image of God. Oh, he didn't really mean what he said. He's not really a consistent father. He, he won't really defend, you know, the orphan and the widow. No, no, he's the whole package. You can't tame him. You can't put him in a box. When we see a religious figure fail, um, a religious renowned figure fail, whether it's a priest or a bishop or the president of a Christian university, whatever we see that, we see a person fail who, who has proclaimed Christ publicly, taken a stand for Christ publicly, given their life to Christ in service publicly, and then failed. Of course, we... We, not a one of us knows what anybody else in the world thinks. We can't know the inside of anybody else but ourselves. And even that's a little questionable. <laughs> but we, we can't know that. But if I can project a little, I can't help but think that it was a loss of the fear of God over a period of time, particularly the loss of servile fear that opens the door for us to give in to tempt the devil, the world, the flesh, and the devil that will do everything possible to destroy us. And when we get to the point where we lose that fear of punishment, we can get to the point of thinking we're beyond right and and become callous and even justify our immorality to the point where on the one hand we might in the public look holy do everything holy we're in the privacy of our other world as you were saying earlier John Mark separating yeah that we can become contradictory, contradictory witnesses of Christ. Yeah, you know, it strikes me that, that this is one of the reasons. One of the reasons I'm so grateful personally for, you know, many of the traditions, the devotions, and the sacraments that the church gives us, because, you know, the the question then comes up, and with those examples, then how how does one, how does one cultivate an ongoing proper holy fear of the lord that would protect you from that and it seems like well there has to be at least a piece of it has to be constantly you know um, 
getting to know yourself <laughs> and then constantly reacquainting yourself with God, you know, because your picture of your, either of those pictures, you know, always keeping in mind the, the information I have in my head is not truth itself. It's a, if it's, it's an image of truth. I have a, a copy of that. I have an image of God, who God is an image of who I am. Well, those are always deficient and they're always maybe crumbling and getting worse over time. So part of what I have to do throughout my life is to get to know myself better. I have to reacquaint with myself. I have to do an examination of conscience on in an ongoing way so that I don't forget I remain a sinner. Even if I've done some good things, even if I've made some progress, I remain a sinner. I remain a, a humble, poor soul in need of mercy. And I need to continually reacquaint with myself with God through his scriptures, through spiritual reading, through uh, being in contact with other people that are holier than I am, at least in, in certain ways that challenge me, because that refreshes my memory of, oh yeah, God is great. And whatever image I had of him, it's not enough. It has to be broken and reformed to, to allow for an even greater and grander picture of who God is so that I don't lose that fear. He really is great and even greater than I've previously understood or imagined. I am going to be so bold as to say that the most important aspect of the sacrament of confession isn't the absolution it's going there you know what i mean john mark that, you know if you if, when a person realizes what it's all about and realizes their need for confession at the core of that is the fear of God. Right. If you don't have the fear of God, you probably won't go to confession. Yeah, yeah something will give. You know, you'll either stop going or, you know, that, that kernel of fear gets reignited, reawakened by saying, you know what, I, I have to do this. God's given me this thing, this external thing to do. You know? yeah. yeah, Our Lady is reported to have said at Fatima, that when we pray the rosary, we're to add a little prayer. And that came about because Lucia had the vision of hell, right? And what is that little prayer? The prayer is, Oh my Jesus, forgive us our sins and save us from the fires of hell. Lead all souls to heaven, especially those who most need of thy mercy. At the core of that is a healthy fear of God. Right. Everyone. Right. Everyone. And they must never lose it. I'm going to jump it also ahead. reminds me, well, I just want to say too, because you've got to be thinking about prayers too, like, you know, the Jesus prayer is another great example of this. You know, the Jesus prayer, we, this, this, which in the, you know, the East is this, um, this practice. Oftentimes it's even done with beads. It's repeated. Jesus, uh, Lord Jesus Christ, son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And, you know, a monk might even pray that over and over throughout the day, almost as a mantra. But, but, you know, there's lots of things that could be said about that short prayer. But one thing that that prayer is doing is, 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 as a drumbeat, reminding myself, God is God, I am not. It puts It's putting Christ up here and it's putting me back down here in my place so that I maintain that proper relationship, you know. Yep, yep. In fact, I'm going to jump ahead. Yeah. I'll just flip-flop a verse, yeah, Mark, because I think it connects. Sure. We just heard our Lord um, talk about the need to fear God and the, the importance of that. Well, he said in Hebrews... The writer of the book of Hebrews in Hebrews 5, 7 makes this amazing statement. He says, in the days of his flesh, 
Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard for his godly fear. You know, one of the biggest struggles throughout the history of, of the church has been trying to strike that balance between his divinity and his humanity. And, and it's, it's really impossible for us as humans to keep that balance. We don't even have a concept for something that is 100% God and 100% man. That's right. an, that doesn't make sense in yeah. our humanity. So how do we balance out that Jesus Christ was fully God and yet so fully man that he feared God? To me, that verse requires a lot of prayer for reflection because it helps us understand what we're talking about. If the human Jesus, who so knew God, think about that so knew God, so knew the love of God and the mercy of God, yet that therefore defined the, the, the fear that he had of God in his humanity. Yeah. And yeah, we yeah. I, well, I, <laughs> go ahead, go ahead. I'm just going to say that, yeah. that just that thinking about that to come up with an answer. Remember all the saints and the great writers, Augustine, Thomas Aquinas, the Eastern writers, Chrysostom, and all that struggled with answering that very question. It, it's a bit beyond our ability to truly understand how it is possible that the divine human being Jesus feared God, but yet he did. And that's, he was heard because of that. Right. That should tell us something about prayer. If our Lord was heard in his supplications, prayers, loud cries and tears, of course, we have the image of, of Gethsemane, because of his fear, You know, a part of that, I think, as I'm envisioning that, is our Lord accepting upon himself not just our sins, but upon himself the unknown of our lives. In other words, right, the uncertainty. The, the uncertainties. Yeah. We're on this side of death. Right. And, you know, we have a, a great hope that as it said here, if we fear that, that it all will turn out in the end, you know, we have that hope. We don't have that absolute assurance, so there's an uncertainty. And our Lord took that completely upon himself. All the temptations apart except sin, which is another verse from Hebrews. And in the midst of that, he recognized our need, he affirmed our need to fear God and to fear the uncertainty of the life ahead. Yeah. Yeah. It's that fear that, yeah, it draws us into the, the theological virtues. Again, it's, it's the kind of fear that's being talked about here must be the sort of fear that not just can coincide with love, but has to be even connected with love. It's this, it's this outward facing recognition of the other, you know, about in the case of God, uh, we stand in relationship to God as creature 
in relationship to our creator. And so that the only possible, um, the only possible right relationship has to involve this holy fear, this recognition of God's greatness. But he invites us into love. And so that, that sort of love, that, that, that perfect reverence, that perfect awe for God in all the reality of his goodness is able is it coincides in his, in his fact the, the the gateway the portal to this perfect love this relationship with the trinity that he invites us into but we have it imaged in christ you know that he in his humanity and his humility um that's the way he's the way toward that that love but it, it, you can't do away with that that uh that foundation stone as we as we grow by grace in conversion to understand what it means that we are children of God. And John says, and such we are. First John 3, we are. John 1, you know, not because we've earned it, but because it's something we're born of him. So we're now his children. And as in our life, we grow to understand what that means, That doesn't mean that when we enter into the presence of God, hey, God, how you doing? Slap him on the back and, and treat him like just a regular old guy. He's God. And, and I'm wondering if the complacency of our faith that we forget that that's whose presence we're entering into when we enter into the sanctuary. Right. When we, when we come forward to receive him in the Eucharist, when we kneel before him in the blessed, in the blessed sacrament chapel, or, or we hear his words of absolution through the priest in the confessional, or are we taking for granted our son and daughtership? Right. There's, there's a balance there. If Jesus yeah. himself in his humanity was heard for his godly fear then to what extent are we being just absolutely irreverently arrogant when we forget this need to fear this creator who's made us all that we are even with the freedoms we have to turn from him he's given us that freedom that should right. be an, an awful thought in itself yeah you know, again, Hebrews was saying this is the way Jesus was. And some might argue, well, again, that's before the cross. That's the way he was. He was seeing in Luke to people before the cross. And he was feeling this fear before the cross. But after the cross and his victorious resurrection and ascension, it's a new thing, new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. But in 2 Corinthians 7, now, the reason I just quoted what I just said, the old is gone, the new has come. That comes right before this in sec when it says in 2 Corinthians 5, anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. So do we need to fear God anymore? Well, one chapter later in 2 Corinthians 7, he says, since we have these promises, since we have all the promises, we're his sons and daughters, the old is gone, the new has come. 
We have grace, the Holy Spirit. We have all these promises, beloved. Let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit and make holiness perfect in the fear of God. Yeah. Period. <laughs> it's not diminished. It's heightened, if anything. You know, that it's the, the, the deeper we see into God. It's, it gets, we have this, it seems like you can't get away from there being this connection between the love and the fear or the justice and the mercy. Um, the deeper you see God's mercy, the, the deeper your profound respect, your profound true holy fear of the Lord must be or else or else you're not facing up to the truth. You know, the more that you receive God's mercy, the more you, re, you respect his justice, the more that you see the, the one, the more that you're able to appreciate the other. And so after the cross, if anything, our, our fear of God uh, should only grow and it should only uh, spur us to more intent conversion of, of, of our life. Yeah, I was thinking of a of a, an often, it's quoted often, John Paul was, was uh, you know, quoted it a lot, where uh, when, when Jesus enters into the upper room and he appears to them and he, he says, have no fear. He has this phrase about, he tells them, don't fear not. And so one might say, well, isn't he saying, hey, the fear of God's gone. But what he's dealing with people that don't know him at the core of who he is yet. And we have to recognize that when, if people grow to know about God in in an incomplete sense, they can be afraid of this God and run away. And so that's when we say you don't fear him because he's a loving, caring, forgiving. So that's a way of, so that you get to know him a little bit. But then as you get to know him, that's when the balance of it is now we're called to go all the way back to Deuteronomy. Fearing him means you walk in his ways, you love him, you serve him with your whole heart and being, you keep his commandments and his statutes, which he's commanded. And in the new covenant, we're able to do that by grace. And when we fail, we're able to turn back to him. As opposed to when we fail, then I, I run away because I'm afraid. Right, right. You know, again, it's so interesting to think of um, uh, the connection here to humility because love, you know, we think about love is a turning outward. We turn away from ourselves toward another person and we affirm them. Now, in the case of God, when we, we turn to face the reality of the person who God is, fear is a natural part of that because of who God is. God is so great. So our love for him and our fear of the reality of who God is, his goodness, his truth, his beauty, his power... Um, those go hand in hand. But that love, that turning outward to both love and fear of God involve a turning away from ourselves. Well, the opposite of that is a turning inward. And there can be fear that comes as a result of self-love. 
And that's the majority of the rest of the fear in our lives, right? To the degree that I love myself, I'm holding on to myself. Well, God's a threat to me, his demands upon me, the responsibilities he wants to place upon me. Or if I think I'm so great, his indictment of the reality of my sinfulness and my failing and my arrogance. And so all those kinds of fears come out of my self-love. They come out of my separation with God. It's when I turn toward God, the, the true holy fear of God for who he is, the reality, the truth of who he is, that coincides also and, and makes possible also the, 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 a true love of God. And in the end, an actual love for myself because the, the prideful self-love is not a true self-love anyway because it's a rejection of that truth. So this, this way of truth and love uh, and fear, they're all, they're all interconnected there in these mysterious ways. Yeah, the, um, I'm going to give a little example that I'm a little hesitant to give, but, um, you know, uh, Dad, forgive me. Um, an example that I think of fear of God, that my father was not a practicing Christian most of his life, and he had all kinds of reasons for that, most of which he kept to himself. He's of that generation, you know, the of the World War II generation, and uh, kept a lot inward, but and he wasn't a very practicing Christian, but he was, but he was a good man. I mean, the, the Christian values, but he was an active believer. And towards the end of his life, he would watch the Journey Home program, and you know, he would do this and that. He wouldn't talk much about it, but he was going through in in the last couple of years of his life, dying of emphysema, and going through some rough time. And I remember one time he had read a book, um, a John Grisham's book, I think called the. It was a, I forget the name of the book, but it was a more of a Christian title, and uh, mm-hmm. and I had encouraged him in an email to pray the Lord's Prayer because of something, and he admitted something to me. He said he does, but he just doesn't think God wants him anymore, and I was really saddened by that thought. But the truth is that it was almost that exclamation by him, that admittance of that kind of fear of God, which was the beginning that led to, on the day he died, when he was uh, in all that equipment at the hospital, and he couldn't talk, and you know, and he he, he wrote on a piece of paper that he wanted it off because he said, right. "I, I want to see Jesus. I'm ready to see Jesus." That he, in his own way, had come, but it began with the admittance of his fear that God didn't want him. Right. You know, that's a fear of God. You know, it, it, it reminds me of what you were saying about earlier about confession, in that there's, yeah, what an, there's, a, there's a mystery there. You, you approach with fear and trembling. You approach with, I mean, do you approach with presumption? Oh, God's just going to forgive me. No, you, like, there, there's a mystery there. On the, like, on the one hand, I, I know God's going to forgive me because he promises it, but I still approach with fear and trembling. And sometimes even that moment that I decide to put it out there or to speak it out loud or even to cry, you know, uh, to, you know, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The scripture even presents us with those figures, Christ 
quoting the Psalms or, or Job, you know, exclaiming to God. We even have those moments where a person exclaims seemingly a despair in God, but the exclamation itself is this holy reverence and this, and this cry, this, 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 um, turning from oneself toward God. And that's then God's grace rushes in. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Once again, since we have these promises, since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit and make holiness perfect in the fear of God. The promises don't negate the need to fear God. If anything, they help us understand the morality of the necessity of that, always, as long as we're on this side of the great divide. It, it, to the end. Right. When my dad, I, don't, I can't, I can't, it was gone inside of my dad, but I'm sure that when he wrote, I'm ready to see Jesus, I know my dad, he wasn't presumptuous there. Right. But somehow in his heart, he had turned to trust that on the other side, of this craziness that he was in as he was diving emphysema on the other side was something he was ready to face. Right. And on that day, just for the rest of the story, a yeah. priest finally met with my father on the afternoon that he died and prayed with him. Yeah. Praise God. All right. Now, John Mark, you and I have had a, a lot of discussion on this. I don't know if we've answered all the questions, any of the questions, because this issue of fear of God is so... We've answered a few of our own, and that's all the most we can hope for. Just one more <laughs> statement as we close. This isn't in Scripture. This is a quote from the early church fathers. And the reason I wanted to end with this is because, again, historically, it was, it was a big part of the Old Testament. Fear of the Lord is all the way through. Some would say, well, it's not a part of the New Testament. It is a part of the New Testament. It was a part of the teaching of Christ. It was a part of his whole being in his humanity. It was a part of the New Testament teaching. It's in 2 Corinthians there. We talked about in Hebrews. There's a verse in the Revelations. We go all the way to the end. So then we enter into the early church. Okay, now what? And what I wanted to emphasize and this is from 1 Clement chapter 21, verse 6, when he writes, and he's a, a, a bishop writing to Christian believers, let us praise those who lead us, let us honor the presbyters, and let us instruct the young with training in the fear of God. And the point is, every single time when you look in the earliest church fathers, whenever the question comes up, about raising our children in the faith, it's always the exact same thing. Bring them up in the fear of God. Right. Why? Because the beginning. Yeah. It's the beginning of wisdom. It's the beginning of humility. It's the beginning of, of self-understanding. It's the beginning of everything. And without it, yeah. we have the chaos in our world around us. You know, this strikes me um, as a reason why Christians can't, ought never and can never dispense with uh, scripture study. Um, I mean, you you could think on the one hand, so we have a wonderful, as Catholics, we have a wonderful catechism. It's a great book. You learn a lot about God and it, it scriptures through and through it's referencing. But, you know, one of the, the values of scripture as a whole, the Bible as a whole, is that 
it's not a catechism. It doesn't give you a bunch of tidy, neat little bullet points about who God is. In many ways, it constantly brings you to face up to the mystery of who God is. Because how, how can we understand God in, in his reality and in, in who he truly is fully? Well, in scripture, through the different stories, through, through, um, through the Psalms, you know, we have all the ups and downs of the Psalms, all the wisdom literature, and then most especially in the person of Christ, it's only in that taken as a whole that we, we get the truest picture of God. We experience the truest picture of God that goes beyond what you might be able to put into a tidy list of bullet points. It's, it's encountering the, the person of God, the personality of God in scripture. That's, it seems to me that that's where this true fear of God comes from and is refreshed. And, and if you, if you feel like you're lacking in it, well, it's like you, you need to go find God. You need to try to experience, you need to ask God and the ways to, the ways he's revealed himself to us, his personality to us is in his scripture and particularly in Christ. And so that, that scripture study as this training in the fear of God seems essential. Oh, well, even appreciating the scriptures for what they are as a gift of the Holy Spirit. Yeah. to challenge us as a part of the wider tradition that's been handed down to us from Jesus to the apostles. Um, if, if you turn over and listen to our, my study in Deep in History with Monsignor Steenson, and we're looking at St. Irenaeus as against heresy, one of the things he emphasizes is that this apostolic tradition has been passed on from the beginning, our Lord to the apostles, and then Scripture is a part of that. So when we when we open the word we should be in awe. We should be in awe. Not arrogantly critiquing it like a you know, some kind of English professor. We should be in awe. Because he will speak to you if you're willing to listen as a child to a father. All right, so Mark, thank you for joining me in this discussion today, my friend, my son. Thank you. Thank you, Dad. Yeah. And uh, thank all of you for listening. I hope this has been an encouragement to you. We look forward to hearing any of your comments and questions and thoughts. So we just scratched the surface on all these parts of the list from Save Cyprian. But next week, we'll pick up on the next one on his list about knowing and following the will of God. So God bless you. Look forward to being with you again next week. Deep in Scripture is a production of the Coming Home Network International. To hear more episodes, view our full archive of written and video conversion stories, participate in our online community forum, and more, visit chnetwork.org. You're also invited to explore free membership in the Coming Home Network and receive support on your own Catholic journey. Again, visit chnetwork.org for more information.